0: Hello and welcome to Nudge, the podcast that helps reveal how our brains work and why we buy the things we buy. I'm your host, Phil Agnew, and in today's episode, we are looking at our perception of food. Now, I'm no wine expert. You can serve me a $50 bottle and I will struggle to distinguish it from a cheap $5 alternative. But wine experts obviously can. In fact, sommeliers who train for years are able to tell you the variety of grape, the type of wine, and even the date the wine was bottled, all from a single sip. Or can they? See, our perception of food and drink isn't just dependent on taste. Turns out lots of other things influence that perception. Frederick Brochet from the University of Bordeaux conducted a fascinating study with sommeliers which showed our perception isn't as accurate as we think. He wanted to see if even highly trained experts with years of experience could be fooled by a fancy looking bottle and a nice wine glass. He served sommeliers white wine that was coloured red with dye and asked the sommeliers to give a description of what they were tasting. Incredibly The 54 wine experts all described this wine with typical red wine terms, saying it tasted like raspberry with with notes of cherry and even chicory. When he revealed the wine they were actually drinking was white, the sommeliers were stunned into silence. Turns out our taste changes dramatically based on our perception. I'm very excited to be joined today by Eve toro Eve is a globally recognised leader on the food system. She is a frequent keynote speaker, Forbes contributor and food expert. Her recent book, Hungry, explains our obsession with food. It talks through some of today's top trends from gluten-free diets to plant-based meat alternatives. Later on in the episode, Eve and I will dig into food perception and what it can teach us marketers about branding, But I started by asking Eve about her career to date. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So, listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today.
1: So my name is Eve Paul. I am a writer, researcher, consultant. Uh, for the last 10 plus years, I've been doing research into the why behind the biggest food and lifestyle trends. This all started with an obsession about millennial food trends way back in 2010, I guess, Uh, and really looking at why it is that young people today are spending so much of their discretionary time and income on food. And once I started to dig into that topic, I became completely and totally obsessed with it. So my undergraduate degree is in psychology. I'm really fascinated by human behavior And a lot of my research involves both the usual tactics of journalism, such as one-on-one interviews and shadowing, uh, but a lot of what I do is also digging into academia uh, to see what type of research is being done in sociology, anthropology, psychology, uh, that relates to and provides deeper insights to the journalistic work that I am doing. So... It's just been a wild ride. I continue to be uh, thoroughly intrigued by this topic. It is always changing. And I spend my days now continuing to do research, uh, staying on top of of, market research trends, um, food and lifestyle trends, human behavior, learning as much as I possibly can. And I also now run a nonprofit called the Food for Climate League that is working on developing new narratives to talk about food and climate. We have a very strong focus on uh, evaluating human behaviour and market research to come up with a better way of talking about and engaging people around sustainable eating.
0: There are a lot of trends for Eve to keep on top of. Every week, it feels like there's a new diet or new alternative restaurant to try. Eve tries to look at these events at a macro scale. She notes in the book that diets have changed more over the past few years than they have in the generations preceding it. In the UK, for example, the vegan population grew by 600% between 2016 to 2018. In the US, sales of non-dairy milk grew by 61% between 2012 and 2017. And during the same period, dairy milk sales dipped by 15%. Eve thinks this unprecedented change might be because as a generation, we are simply obsessed with food.
1: Young people today... I, I. I can't, I can no longer just limit it to millennials. It also includes Gen Z, Um, it also includes, you know, several members of Gen X and, and the baby boomer generation, but large swaths of the global population at this point, the global community are obsessed with food and food has taken on a new meaning in people's lives. Food culture, meaning sophisticated food culture, uh, was really once something only for the wealthy and those who were older. Now, anyone can be a food sophisticate. Uh, you can just turn on the TV and watch Master Chef Juniors. I've talked to so many young people, some of whom are not even teenagers, who are cooking with squid ink and making their own ice cream. There is an understanding of food among young people. That has not existed prior, at least that I have become aware of. And it's not just knowledge of the cooking process, really. It's seeing food as a hobby and a pastime, a way to be creative and express yourself. And that's coming through also in people's diets, the value systems that they're able to express through their diets, their adherence to certain groups, diet tribes, a way to express their value system as it relates to the environment, to build a new skill set. We really just have a whole new way of relating to food today.
0: In Hungary, Eve's book, she provides some compelling stats to back this up. Millennials, for example, have spent more on organic food than any other generation. In Singapore, Hong Kong and China... 18% of personal budgets are spent on dining out. That is more than any other expenditure. In the States, two-thirds of millennials would recommend a travel destination entirely on cuisine. And perhaps most surprisingly, over half of all millennials say they enjoy eating food as much as sex, and over a third say they would choose fine dining over sex. We have an obsession with food. Of course we do. Why else would we spend $22 on some avocado on toast? But is this obsession healthy? Are we right to spend so much time, energy and resource on food?
1: Again, I view every trend, everything that people spend their extra time and money on as a sign of something's missing. Something. Something's missing from uh, our lives. And we're looking to this other thing to help us kind of fill that, that hole. One of the biggest takeaways that I had early on in my research is I uncovered that young people today are the most depressed, stress out, loneliest, most anxious generation on record. Those numbers are Absolutely, without question, climbing during the COVID pandemic, right? We thought we were lonely before. Well, <laughs> now we are learning a, a new kind of loneliness. A lot of the food trends that we are seeing today are indeed helping people cope with those kinds of emotional maladies. And I think that it's very worthwhile to remind people that foodie culture was born out of the 2008 recession. Millennials were just coming into adulthood. They were packing in the U.S. trillions student loan money, I started student loan debt into their bags, and facing a global economy all over the world, young people were facing a global economy that was not going to reward them for the hard work that they had put in uh, to their education, to their studies. Yet, yet, young people decided to spend what little discretionary money they had on food. So why would that be? On the most basic level, it's because so many of these food experiences are viscerally satisfying. They tap into some of the most basic things that we need to find well-being.
0: Now, Eve's book goes into great detail on this. So if you'd like to dive deeper, I suggest picking up a copy. But I'll share something that stood out for me. As a generation, we are far busier than ever before. In 1942, just under 8% of the UK population slept 6 hours or less. Today, that number is 50% of people. Half of us only get 6 hours or less, leaving us tired and stressed out. Technology arguably isn't helping. In a 2016 study by Dr Rosen which looked at smartphone addiction, researchers found that students check their phone on average 56 times a day. That's about every 15 minutes or so of waking time. This addiction leaves us worn out and stressed. In fact, we might not truly realise the problems smartphones could cause our generation and the next, A meta-analysis by researchers at King's College London looked at screen use among 125,000 kids. They found that simply having a smartphone in a child's bedroom impacts the ability for the child to get a good rejuvenating night's sleep. Eve links this right back to food. Could it be that our stress, anxiety and lack of sleep forces us to care more about the things that give us energy, our food? After all, the average US millennial spends a whopping $2,000 a year on coffee. That's more than most of us put into our pension pot. Eve specialises in understanding how food and social media interact. I asked if she thinks sharing food on social media is a good or bad thing.
1: There are certain things that we do. Um, For example, taking photos of our food and posting them online, where we might be expecting more of a benefit than there truly is from it. And this is an interesting thing because right now, when we can't eat with others in person, there is more of a benefit actually to posting about it online because at least you're going to have some kind of social interaction. But in most of the research that I was able to do, I found that those who share their meals online are actually lonelier. It's something we uncovered during the hungry study. Uh, And those who are generally just more attached to their devices are more likely to be ignoring others in person, dedicating less time to the relationships that are of value, um, and setting aside the time and energy to, let's say, connect with a friend over a meal in person, and instead taking a picture of a meal, posting it online, and thinking that you're going to get the same kind of social validation, uh, which we don't. You might get like a little bit of a dopamine hit from you know getting a lot of social peer uh, approval but you're not going to get those more long-lasting feel-good hormones that you would get from seeing somebody in person eye to eye contact touch things of that nature
0: so next time your waiter brings over a delicious plate of food maybe think twice before snapping it for your instagram it could be causing more harm than good Hello there, just a brief interruption from me because I wanted to just take 30 seconds to all let you know about a brilliant course run by last week's guests, Dr. Matt Johnson and Prince Gooman. The fantastic Geo have put together the world's first neuromarketing certification bootcamp held live on Zoom on December 4th to December 6th. Now, if you listen to the last two episodes, you'll know how inspiring Matt and Prince are. With Matt's PhD in neuroscience and Prince's experience as a marketing director, they truly have a unique view on how to successfully learn and apply neuromarketing. Their three-day course covers everything from perception to emotion to subliminal messaging and of course, tips to apply these approaches to your work the great news is, is that nudge listeners can get $500 off the price for those interested in taking the course to do that just enter the coupon code nudgepod that's one word nudgepod to get the discount to sign up for the course and to find out more head to popneuro.com and select bootcamp i've also left a link to the bootcamp in the show notes so you can find out more about it there anyway back to the podcast We are obsessed with food. We spend more on food than we ever have before, but have we actually got a better understanding of taste and flavour? Can we actually tell good food from bad? At the start of the episode, we learned that wine experts can be fooled if the colour of the wine is changed. Turns out it's not just experts or meliers that are affected by this. Everyday consumers like you and me are influenced as well. A study from Hyogo University in Japan fed participants identical tasting soup dyed with different colours. All variations of the soup tasted identical. The red soup tasted exactly the same as the yellow soup. Now, a perfectly rational person who had great taste and understanding of flavour would rank each soup as tasting identical because they did. But it turns out the colour massively alters our perception. Red soup was described as hearty, filling and rich, while the same soup but coloured blue was ranked as deeply unsatisfying and disgusting. The colour of your soup will change your perception, but the brand of your soup and the company alongside it arguably has an even greater effect. In Sight*, authors Matt Johnson and Prince Gouman share a study where participants were given turkey slices to taste. Turns out, when the turkey is served from a branded packet, With a nationally recognised logo, it is reported as tasting much better than an identical piece of turkey but from a generic package. Okay, maybe that one's not a surprise. We like things that are branded. Of course we do. That is marketing 101. But branding can do much more than just increase our enjoyment. One brilliant study cited in Rory Sutherland's latest book, Alchemy, tested the effects of Red Bull on 154 Parisian men. In the study, each of the men were given one of three drinks, a vodka cocktail, a fruit juice cocktail, and a vodka Red Bull. After consuming the drink, they were questioned on how they felt. Incredibly, men who drank the Red Bull variant reported feeling more intoxicated, stated they'd be willing to show riskier behaviour, and claimed they'd be far more confident with women. The trick was, as maybe you can guess, is that All of the drinks contained Red Bull, the exact same amount of Red Bull and the exact same amount of alcohol. The only thing that encouraged that different behaviour for the Red Bull drinkers was the Red Bull brand. Knowing that the cocktail contained Red Bull changed perception. I guess it turns out that Red Bull, at least in a hypothetical sense, does give you wings. While researching for her book, Eve spoke to many psychologists and researchers and came to a similar conclusion, that branding influences our perception. Here's Eve talking about just that.
1: I was able to dig into... Evolutionary biology and also evolutionary psychology around knowing the origins of our food, super, super fascinating for me to talk to some of these researchers who were able to outline that food tastes better when we know where it comes from, like in the lab, if you give people the same plate of food, but some people know who made it and where that food came from. Other people, they're just getting a plate of food. The eating experience is rated as being more satisfying if you know where it comes from. All the way down to buying a bottle of olive oil. If it says that olive oil came from Italy, it's going to taste better to you than if the bottle of olive oil is labeled as saying it comes from Thailand. Because you're like, that doesn't make any sense. What, I, what I'm getting at is people will pay more for food that they trust, And so sometimes it's going to be a brand that's done a really good job of promoting itself as trustworthy, be it through opening up the doors to show people about their sourcing or the high standards that they have, or in some way being able to build up another form of brand equity. But like the non-GMO movement, for example, at least through my research, what I found is that at the end of the day, people are saying no to GMOs because they simply don't understand them. It's not that people understand the science behind genetic modification. Most people don't. It's people saying, I know that there's a big agrochemical company behind this. I know that I don't know what this is. Therefore, I don't want it in my food.
0: One of the studies Eve cites in her book backs up this claim. The study surveyed 1,300 people across North America, Europe and Asia and found that 50% of people were willing to pay 10% more for a food or drink product if it contained known and trusted ingredients. People want to know what goes into their food. They rely on labels like organic, fresh and locally sourced. Consumers are also heavily influenced by where their food comes from. Another study involving wine gave two sets of diners a glass of cheap American wine known as Two Buck Chuck. The wine doesn't taste particularly nice, but it's cheap, costing just two dollars a bottle. In the study, a waiter would tell diners about the wine before they drank it. The waiter would give all sorts of information covering its age, how it was made, and importantly, where it was from. In half the tests, the waiter said that the wine was from Northern California an area that is renowned for great wine. In the other half of the tests, the diners were told the wine came from North Dakota, somewhere less well-known for its great wine. After, diners were quizzed on how much they enjoyed the wine and all agreed that the Northern California version tasted much, much better, even though, in both examples, the wine was identical. Our perception of food changes based on the associations we have with it. It changes based on the location it's from, the amount it costs, and even the way it's served all changes the taste. Some brands have built multi-billion dollar businesses off the back of this. Instead of building a unique taste or flavour, many firms instead choose to build a great brand as it often has the same, if not a greater, impact on sales. I asked Eve which food and beverages brands have impressed her during her research.
1: I think, well, Oatly's done amazing brand building just extraordinary. I think Impossible Burger has also done a really good job. Um, Impossible Burger is not good for you, uh, like on a nutrition level. It's not, it's not great. Um, But there's a sophistication that, and and like a sense of innovation and uh, eagerness to try something new that is infused into the brand that makes it exciting to eat. It makes it something fun to eat. And you also have that other, you know, altruistic bent to it. You're like, I'm doing something good for the environment, right? You're choosing to have something that is plant-based instead of from potentially, you know, CAFO agriculture, animal agriculture. My mind always goes to Patagonia uh, in terms of, it's not food, although they do have a food brand that's uh, Patagonia Provisions. That's, That's pretty good. But I buy Patagonia products because I love the value system and the ethos of the company. I honestly don't even compare the product to other companies at this point. So there might be a better place to get a winter jacket or a better place to get dry soup mix, if you know, Patagonia provisions, but I don't really look anywhere else. I just buy it from them because I like their ethos. I like that they're giving back.
0: Impossible Burger, the plant-based alternative to beef burgers, are perceived by most as being healthy. A study by Solid found that 45% of buyers believe the plant-based burger is healthier than meat. Only 25% believe it's unhealthier. Interestingly, they then varied the study by actually showing the consumers the nutritional information. The consumers could then go and look for themselves and see how healthy the plant-based option was compared to the meat-based alternative. Despite that, There was only a slight shift towards perceiving that the plant-based product was less healthy. Only 5% of people changed their opinion. That's even though that nutritional information shows pretty clearly that it is worse for you. For the vast majority of us, the association with plant-based meat is too cemented in our minds to shake. We still believe it, despite having evidence suggesting otherwise sitting right in front of us. Now that's almost all we have time for today, but before we go, I wanted to ask Eve one final question. Eve understands food trends better than most. She has spent years researching it. So I asked what future generations will think of our diet. What will people in 20 years time think about how we ate in 2020?
1: I think most of our diet is going to shock us in generations to come. There is a basic lack of awareness that we have as a global society, I'm, you know, I'm overgeneralizing here, but those who partake in the industrialized food system, where we have forgotten that our food, anything we eat, comes from the ground, whether we're eating a plant, whether we're eating an animal, we are eating something that has taken nutrients from the soil, and those nutrients are then being consumed by us to fuel our own existence, to fuel our own uh, health and vitality. You know, part of the major climate dilemma that we have these days is that we, this is my favorite phrase, but we treat our soil like dirt. (laughs) And we don't focus on the fact that our lives are dependent on that soil, that we are consuming things from that soil day in, day out, that it's also our responsibility to return those nutrients to the soil. I, Will be very surprised if, in I don't know, even 20 years' time, people are not far more aware of that relationship. I think that people are going to look back on this time of a global industrialized food system and shake their heads and say, How did that ever happen? How did that ever work? How, like, that food must not have tasted good. People were all eating the same things. How boring is that? There wasn't a lot of nutrients in it. We have this extraordinarily beautiful opportunity to be eating a greater variety of foods that taste better, that are grown within our own regions, or if they're not, we're at least paying the appropriate amount of money for you know, the cost of shipping it in. I have high hopes that we're, go- that we're going to have a more equitable and more environmentally sound food system. Uh, in the future. And I do think that we're going to look back on on the fact that everybody has access to bananas and avocados year round as something that's just outrageous.
0: (laughs) That is unfortunately all we have time for today. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Eve for coming on the show. If you're interested in finding out more about her work and her research, I've left a link to her website and her book Hungry in the show notes. I also want to give a big thank you for everybody who has left a review for Nudge on Apple Podcasts. I read all of them and I'm really touched by some of the kind things people have to say. Those reviews actually really help us grow the show. So thank you very much for leaving them. Now, I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Nudge. To make sure you don't miss that, sign up to the mailing list, the link to which is in the show notes. If you do that, I will send you an email every time a new show goes live and I'll drop in some additional thoughts about the topic that we discuss on the episode. Okay, that is all for now. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Nudge.